Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Shares of CBS, they are down more than 6% after this ruling by the Delaware judge. A victory for Shari Redstone, who happens to be a CBS director and president of the uh, of her family's movie theater operator, National Amusements. Of course, they're pushing for a merger uh, with CBS and National Amusements controls Viacom. Here to tell us more about it all is uh, Paul Sweeney, uh, director of North American Research for Bloomberg Intelligence and Internet and Media. Media analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Paul, uh, is this the uh, the conclusion, do you believe, of uh, Leslie Moonves's career at CBS? Well, it, it certainly could be. I think we still have probably uh, six months of litigation back and forth between the you know the, all the parties here. But this was a big blow for Les uh, and for the board uh, that was trying to reassert some level of. Uh, uh, influence and and uh, versus its control shareholder national amusements here and and uh, that initial uh, 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 opportunity for them really took a big blow here. So um, this is something that I think you know the neck the the ball is in the the court of Sherry Redstone and National Amusements and and what will they do with the board? What will they do with management, including less? Um, and I think with the stock down six percent, it t- kind of t- tells you that investors think uh, a deal is coming, a merger is going to happen, and it won't include less Moonves. Yeah, so so basically, shares down more than six percent on the expectation that Les Moonves will exit from the helm of CBS, that Viacom and CBS will merge, which a lot of shareholders of CBS don't want. Um, just can you bring back the memory of why CBS is so why CBS shareholders are against this merger at this point? I think CBS shareholders view Viacom as a flawed asset. Um, it's uh, you know it's a company that's been struggling. Um, the cable networks are particularly prone to cord cutting because the the MTV networks, the Nickelodeon networks, and all those they tend to uh, you know be uh, targeting uh, younger demos, and the younger demos are spending uh, less and less time with television. Number one, and number two, the 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 film studio, the Paramount Film Studio, has really been uh, underperforming. So if you're a CBS shareholder, you say, "Gee, my CBS story is working pretty well." The CBS network's doing well, the Showtime network's doing well, um, and I'm pretty happy with my CBS investment. I don't want to uh, see CBS buy Viacom because I just don't think they're a great company, and I think they're going to be dilutive to my growth rate uh, going forward. So I think most investors, and I think Les Moonves was saying, listen, if you're going to force us to merge with Viacom, it has to be on our terms at CBS, i.e. our financial terms. We uh, want to. We don't want to dilute our shareholders, and more. Most importantly, it has to be on our management terms. We want our management team uh, to run the combined company, and that management uh, issue is really the the stumbling block here. Paul, maybe just to outline what was CBS trying to do tactically? Um, I think C- well, CBS was trying to invoke a part of their bylaws. Uh, which is very unique to their bylaws, which allows them to uh, convene a special meeting today of the board and to declare uh, a one-time stock dividend, which would dilute the ownership, the voting ownership of NAI from about 80% uh, down to 17%, effectively uh, negating the control that Sherry Redstone would have. And that's what got blocked. You know, when you came in here, you said that Sherry Redstone and Les Moonves can never work together again, period, the end. So even if there's some kind of win on this appeal, 
you know, unless they actually can strip control from Sherry Redstone, Les Moonves is out. I think so. I think the uh, I don't see a scenario here where uh, this management team at CBS, this board at CBS can ever come back and work with Sherry Redstone and National Amusements. I just think the, you know, the 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 trust, the relationships have probably been irrevoc- irrevocably broken here uh, with these legal maneuvers. So I'd like you to put on your psychology hat because I know that you have one and uh, talk a little bit about Sherry Redstone when she reads this result, when she hears the court ruling is she jubilant or, I mean, it's sort I, of a tricky thing because she also owns shares in CBS. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I, I think she is. I think she's um, she's probably, as a control shareholder of both companies, is really t- playing the long game here. And the long game for her and for her uh, family's interest in the two companies is to, in her mind, to put the companies together to be a larger company with more global scale uh, more resources to compete, not just against the Comcast and the Disney's of the world, but against the the Googles and the Facebooks and the Amazons and the Netflixes. Um, and that is a that that is a theory that is prevalent in the media world today. We're seeing lots of consolidation. Again, most notably with Disney looking at 21st Century Fox, Comcast uh, circling around those same assets. Um, so AT and T, you know, trying to close its acquisition of Time Warner. So her strategic rationale is absolutely consistent with what's going on in the marketplace. Uh, it's just simply that uh, you know the, one of the two parties, in this case CBS, doesn't want to do the deal on her terms. Would it be possible for CBS under uh, Leslie Moonves to initiate a large acquisition? Uh, no, because um, you know Sherry Redstone, as again control shareholder, w- w- would not allow it, and that's one of the reasons over the years uh, CBS hasn't really done any large acquisitions because um, you know it, they they would have to get the approval of, of of National Amusements and Sherry Redstone, and I guess they felt like that they never had that support. So, you know, I think the um, the only bull case scenario left for CBS is that that they win their you know, legal case against National Amusements. Um, and they are left as a standalone company with National Amusements, maybe even diluted down, in which case then the story becomes very interesting for CBS shareholders because they can either, uh, you know, just grow with the existing management team and let the management team, uh, you know, kind of deal with it. Or, um, you know, they become a uh, acquisition candidate of, of their own. But that assumes that they, you know, kind of win all on appeals going forward here. I'm wondering if you could just extrapolate out into the future and let's talk about sherry redstone's strategy because you're saying that she's betting on a stronger combined company between viacom and cbs viacom shares up about one percent on this news is she right well um i don't it, it remains to be seen the the assets here one could argue that even if you merge cbs and viacom together it's still not a great company it's it's not a walt disney um you know and and, and you, you take a look at some of the other media moguls in in the marketplace jeff bukas at time warner rupert murdoch at 21st century fox they've effectively thrown in the towel and agreed to sell their companies because they recognize that you know going forward over the next 5 to 10 years you know how do i even think about competing against amazon and google and facebook and netflix and all these companies and apple um so you could argue that even if you merge these two companies you're still left at a competitive disadvantage in, you know kind of going forward and i do want to note it was up 1% the shares of viacom but they are now down about a half percent so right and the shares of cbs they're down about uh, 6 and a half percent is there any uh, likelihood just quickly uh, uh paul less moonvest could have a a, a second 
a career. I mean, he's going to be a very attractive candidate for any position. Uh, absolutely. And uh, he's going to have a lot of money in his pocket as well. So, um, you know, we've, we've seen that in the past. Um, you know, Jeffrey Katzenberg has been able to raise some money to kind of get into uh, back into the business on the digital side. What we're seeing here is I think, you know, we've seen a lot of media execs who have left kind of the big uh, conglomerates kind of go off on their own and, and, you know, kind of try to figure out ways to make money in the digital side of the media business. Paul Sweeney, we will be having you back to discuss this more in depth, I'm sure, as it progresses. A really interesting and fascinating and, frankly, surprising uh, decision. Paul Sweeney, Director of North American Research for Bloomberg Intelligence. The shares of oil refiners are surging today. Uh, Delec U.S. holdings up more than 5%. CVR refining a gain of nearly 4%. Holly Frontier adding more than 5.25%. Here to tell us more about the refining industry is Peter Pullican. He is the U.S. energy analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us here in our 1130 studios. Peter, thank you very much for being here. Maybe you could just start off by explaining that U.S. refining capacity is not necessarily aligned with the kind of shale oil that exists in abundance in the United States. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, a lot of people, when they think about um, the explosion of shale and U.S. independence, they don't realize that oil by itself can't is, is not really terribly useful. It needs to be refined. And the U.S. refinery complex, which is the largest and biggest in the world, was built prior to shale. So what that means is it was actually built in a world to process a very different type of crude, a heavier type of crude than what shale is. So now we're reaching the point where these refiners have tried to benefit as much as they can from the onslaught of shale, but it's reaching a maximization saturation point. So now that crude that the U.S. is producing needs to find a new home. So you're seeing the spread between WTI, which is domestic prices, and Brent, which are global prices, blow out. And that's going to be persistent for some time. Who are the big refiners in the U.S.? So we have Delec, there's Valero, um, P- there's PBF, uh, Philip 66. Uh, all these refiners in general benefit because essentially they're going to they're going to capitalize on lower input costs and higher output output costs for their prices for their product. So is this a reason why we haven't really seen the profit boom in many shale companies that that some were expecting? I mean, most uh, shale companies are still spending more than they are taking in. That's right. I mean, overall price levels going up obviously helps all these companies, but they do have a cash flow problem. But oil prices at $70, quite frankly, cures a lot of balance sheet issues and debt issues that they're having. Um, but the issue going forward now for them is domestic producers, EMPs, will receive a lower price than uh, someone else globally. So what that means is on a relative basis, they're not winners. Peter, I'm looking at the uh, national average price as quoted by the AAA, the price uh, $2.90. Although, of course, if you're in California or New York or any of the coast, really, uh, you're ending up paying uh, a substantially higher price. In some cases, uh, California, $3.70 for a gallon. Uh, is, uh, is the increase also uh, going to affect industries that use refined products other than gasoline? So I'm thinking of the chemical industry. Well, I think the, all these industries are governed by uh, by different forces. So the, the refiners are really going to benefit. It's essentially, the, the way you need to think about it is, look, they produce a variety of products that go into a lot of different industries, like you mentioned, from petrochemicals to, to gasoline. And the margins for those products are widening, which is called the crack spread. So all these, the, the real winner in all this uh, is going to be the refiners. And the, they'll simply... Uh, 
elevate the cost of their products to uh, the uh, the end users, which are the petrochemical companies and, and ultimately the U.S. consumer. So has there been any talk about building more refinery capacity here? Uh, there has been talk of it. Exxon is thinking about expanding their their light oil processing capacity. Um, but the, rea- the reality is refiners are really expensive facilities. And in order for them to uh, consider uh, greenfield expansion, the economics uh, need to be better. Uh, so what they've done historically as Shale boomed is that they've done added things onto their facilities such as alkanization units and other type things to, to be able to process more crude. But at some point, these are capital... Uh, these are capital maximizing companies, and you cannot maximize the profits of refiners by increasing the increasing exponentially the amount of shale that they process. Peter, can they just export it? Well, this is a great question and, and the subject of the next research report I'm writing on. But now we've actually going to reach a cap in in exports. So currently we export about 2.7 million barrels per day. And if you look at the chart uh, for exports, it looks like something exponential growth. Now, the, the mistake that the markets are making is that they're extrapolating that this exponential growth in exports can continue. But that's about to hit a bottleneck. So refiners are maxed out. Oil has nowhere to go in the continental U.S. And there's uh, a glut of it being produced. So that spread between WTI and Brent is going to stay wide for uh, a long time. And this suggests that the price that people are going to pay at the pump could potentially rise disproportionately in the U.S. to the rise in uh, Brent. That That's right. Meaning, essentially, gasoline is priced off of Brent global prices. So when people see, talk about discounted U.S. crude and the abundance of U.S. shale, why aren't we seeing it at the pumps? The reality is refiners process local crude, but the gasoline market is a global market, and that's priced much higher. Wow, that was really fantastic. I understand this a lot better. Peter Pulikin, he is U.S. Energy Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. We will look out for that next report. We will read it and we will highlight it. Uh, definitely really interesting dynamic right now, given the fact that oil prices are climbing to their highest level uh, in years. And this should help those shale drillers and it should help the pump. And yet, and yet... Earnings for companies in the S&P 500 up about 25% so far, and yet the stock market doesn't seem to reflect that increase in profits. Here to help us understand more is Casey Matthews. He is Economist Chief Investment Officer for UMB Bank based in Kansas City, Missouri, helping to manage more than $10 billion of customer assets. Casey, thank you very much for being with us. So what accounts for what is, seems to be a divergence? You look at, as you, as you mentioned, profits are up. But stocks, well, the S&P 500 is up 2% year-to-date. Right. My take is that our economy and the markets are in a state of transition. We came from this Goldilocks environment where we had low interest rates, low inflation, synchronized global growth, and, of course, stellar corporate earnings. It's interesting. Our research department and I were sitting around talking about, well, what's the opposite of Goldilocks? To some degree, it might be the big bad wolf. So today, our economy has transitioned from a Goldilocks environment to an economy riddled with these big bad wolves. Now we have rising interest rates, changing inflation expectations, a question regarding synchronized global growth, peak earnings, trade wars. So you can see you have all these issues that potentially could blow down economic activity. And that, of course, disrupts the market. 
leads to volatility and a lot of uncertainty. The big bad wolf. I think you just coined the new phrase, Casey Matthews. Are (laughs) we experiencing the big bad wolf? Um, Given the fact that we are transitioning uh, to the other part of the Goldilocks story, um, I'm trying to figure out, I mean, does this mean that you're moving a greater proportion of your $10 billion of assets into cash? Or uh, what are you doing with this? Yeah, good question. Not yet. I think clearly there are some yellow flags out there in the economy and financial markets, but it doesn't appear that we have the red flags. And when you look at a lot of market signals, many times if you look at those signals mutually exclusively, it will lead to a premature decision to de-risk portfolios. So a perfect example is the slope of the yield curve. Of course, the difference between the two and 10-year treasury is about 53 basis points today. And this indicator has a perfect track record of forecasting looming recessions. Um, so once the, yield, once the slope of that yield curve becomes flat to inverted, there's the red flag. You've got an oncoming recession. But it's interesting, you still have 12 to 18 months before you see the recession once that yield curve becomes inverted. So what we like to do is look for pairings of signals. And what we found is when you look at the slope of the yield curve paired with the change in high yield spreads, you get a better signal uh, to de-risk portfolios, and it's not as premature as just looking at, one, the slope of the yield curve. So those are things that we're watching right now. And right now you get a, a bit of a green light, meaning it's not time to de-risk portfolios just yet. Casey, if someone has new money to deploy, what would you suggest they do? Well, of course, it depends on their, their objectives and their risk budget. Well, let's say that they're, they're willing to wait three to five years. Uh, they don't want to lose it, of course, but they're willing that, uh, to, under, to uh, undertake uh, an investment that uh, isn't going to show a month-by-month increase in value. Yeah, I think to some degree it's, it's, it's the old adage of a well-diversified portfolio. I would put money at risk today. Um, I am favorable in the stock market. Our asset allocation models are overweight uh, risk uh, via the stock market. And, and to some degree, but U.S. No stock market, emerging stock market, uh, developed Europe, where would it go? Yeah, we're overweight domestic large-cap stocks. Uh, but of course, have a healthy weight to mid caps and small caps, and then do have an allocation to international and emerging markets. So across the board, we would get exposure. But to answer your question, I think the the play right now is domestic large cap stocks. All right. So Casey, one thing that I'm wondering is it's one thing to say, look, I don't see a recession on the horizon. Companies look like they're in pretty good shape. Uh, It's another thing to say, look, the relative valuation just doesn't look so hot anymore. And you're certainly seeing that narrative uh, continue to gain prominence as the 10-year Treasury yield rises. Where are you on that? At what point will the 10-year Treasury start to look attractive as an alternative to stocks? Oh, I think uh, the yield has some uh, legs to go on that, meaning 310, it's too early. I don't think investors are going to switch from stocks uh, to bonds just yet, especially looking at a 10-year treasury. Um, I think you have to get that yield up to closer to 4%. It's interesting, at the beginning of the year, our forecast for the 10-year tre- treasury was 3.25%. And a lot of people thought, oh, you're, you're going to miss the mark there. And here we are at 3.1% already. So I think we've got some time. I think the tipping point would be closer to 4% rather than 3%.
Casey Matthews, thank you so much for being with us, uh, with us and giving us the big bad wolf theory of the world. Casey Matthews is an economist uh, and chief investment officer at UMB Bank uh, with $10 billion under management. And this is the time in the show when we wring our hands and wonder whither Walmart. We announced a pretty good earnings report earlier today and shares were up and now they're down more than a percent. Here to uh, wax wax uh, retail with us is Jennifer Vertashis, senior U.S. food retail and mass merchants analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Jennifer, what happened here? Why are people treating this as a negative report? Well, you know, it, it really was a solid quarter for Walmart, but I think the news uh, that is out about the deal between Kroger and Ocado is uh, is just reinforcing the idea that there's no clear winner in online commerce for grocery especially, um, and that it's going to remain a very competitive landscape for the indeterminate future. Tell people about the Kroger deal. So, yeah, what, what this deal that Kroger and Okada have, have, have penned is really about installing highly efficient automated warehouses that do picking of grocery online orders, um, assembles those orders very quickly, and then um, is able to you know, achieve a, a lot of scale so that they can be delivered to people's homes in a very economical manner. Um, the biggest challenge with the, with the home delivery for groceries is that it's, it's the least profitable business model that companies can follow. So something that's highly efficient and highly automated really helps uh, solve some of that problem. You know, Jennifer, I'm struck by the fact that Walmart reported earnings that included fairly good online sales. They purchased Flipkart uh, and they were penalized for it because people were saying you're going outside your wheelhouse, but they showed pretty good growth internationally. Why are they getting punished if they do and punished if they don't? Well, it's one of those situations where, you know, at this point, um, you know, Walmart is just going to stick true to their, you know, to their their plan for the year, which is really about optimizing their portfolio, making the in-store experience as good as it can. Um, and at this point, it's very difficult to determine exactly what would make everybody happy if there is even such a thing. Um, so, so really, it's about staying the course. Um, and you know, they do expect that the online sales will be, you know, back up in a, a, around 40% for the entire year for, for growth and the growth figure. And, and really, that's the plan right now. Do we have any information that this Okado technology as used by Kroger in the United States, because the Okado technology is in use in the UK in their business, also in France with a deal with the casino uh, supermarket operator. Uh, Is there any information that says it's going to work here in the United States? Well, you know, depending, it, it could be very efficient in the United States in certain areas. Um, the, the model really relies on having a good population density, so near our big um, urban centers, um, and it relies on people in continuing to adopt online grocery. Um, and that's something that's still more nascent in the U.S. than it is in Europe at this point, but it is continuing to grow at a pretty rapid pace. So there's an expectation that by the time these facilities are built and are operational, that there will be enough demand to, to sustain them. One thing I'm struck by is so Kroger shares are up about 2.6 percent uh, so far today after this news was announced. I, what strikes me, though, is when you start battling on the food grounds, I think about Amazon.com and how we were talking yesterday about the fact that they're offering their Amazon Prime members discounts at Whole Foods. I mean, isn't this an uphill uphill battle at this point, given sort of the footprint that Amazon has? 
Well, it, 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 it's definitely a, a highly competitive environment, right? But, you know, we have to think about with Amazon, they still haven't really mastered fresh food. Um, they've brought some, uh, some expertise in that area when they got Whole Foods. But, again, Whole Foods only has about 460 stores across the United States. Um, compare that to Kroger's over 2,000, right? So, um, so Amazon, I'm, you know, cannot ever be underestimated with their willingness to, to conquer a particular category, and grocery is clearly in their sights. Um, but I don't think that there's a verdict yet that they've actually been successful doing that. And they're already scouting sites in the United States for this new kind of automated warehouse, right? They are indeed. Um, and, you know, I would expect that some of the initial sites will be in areas where Kroger already has very strong market share, um, certainly something that's close to their home, uh, hometown in Cincinnati, um, and perhaps somewhere like Los Angeles um, or Seattle area, you know, areas where they have um, leading market share and a, a good number of stores in the area. So they have a, a large customer base they can draw from. One thing I'm, at, I'm wondering as we talk about the Okada deal is how much this has to do with people picking up the groceries in Kroger locations versus in packaging it for them ahead of time or how much it has to do with actually delivering it to them because the last mile delivery is what everybody talks about as being the most expensive and difficult to accomplish. Yes, uh, and, and that's absolutely accurate. And, and these, 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 uh, these centers are really meant to, to, to be that last mile delivery to people's homes. Um, and what, what will happen is at some point, click and collect for you, pick it up at the grocery store, is, is gaining popularity. Um, but when you're picking those groceries in the store, at some point that operation becomes it interferes with other shoppers in the store. Um, and you know, if if the the offering continues to grow at the pace it has, um, there are locations where their demand will outstrip their ability to fill offers in stores, and then those could be shifted over to one of these automated centers. Jennifer, uh, Sobeys, which is uh, based in Canada, the uh, the retailer, uh, the grocery store, uh, really, they've also struck this deal uh, with Ocado uh, for these automated uh, warehouses. Uh, is there any indication that when this scales, uh, it will be uh, a competitive advantage and that maybe even Walmart will look to do the same thing? Well, in, in, in Canada, much like in, in the United States, Sobeys has an exclusive arrangement with Ocado. Um, but one of the challenges that is, that is there in the Canadian market is that um, the initial location for these warehouses are in the greater Toronto area, and that is not Sobeys' home base. Um, it's not where they have the majority of their stores. Um, so it will be interesting to see as it unfolds if they're able to acquire market share away from, the, um, from Loblaw and from Metro, who are the ones who have a greater share in that area. I want to thank you very much for being with us. Always a pleasure. Jennifer Bartoshis, Senior U.S. Retail and Staples and Restaurants Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.